Hi, everybody. It is Aaron Solomon, and this is the nextlevel.com legal podcast. First of all, it's super hard to believe that this is episode 10, season one, the end of our first season. One thing that I want to say is we've had such amazing guests during the first nine episodes of the season, and it's not going to stop today. As Elle Woods would say, today is like evidentiary support of the great guests we've had all season. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce Emily Orchard. Emily, I've known for several years and I got your title because when we met, you were the Director of Career Development Programs at Canada's most elite law school. We can get into that, by the way, for the Canadians who think that Canada doesn't have elite law schools. Um, but you are now the Assistant Dean of Graduate Programs at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. Did I say that correctly? You did indeed. Thank you very much for joining us from Toronto, Canada. I know we have lots to talk about and you, you let a secret out. You told me you listened to this podcast. I do. I've listened to every episode uh, as anybody, I think, preparing uh, to be a, a participant would. And it's fantastic. And I'm really, as an aside, just honored to be in the company of everyone else with whom you've spoken over the last many weeks. Well, thank you very much for saying that. And you absolutely belong within this company for a variety of reasons. And I'm going to start off by throwing something out there that actually Harvard Law School put in their 2015 year-end report on legal education. And I quote, I don't usually get this academic, but since I'm speaking <laughs> with someone at, again, a very elite law school, um, I'm going to say that what Harvard said was legal education is facing enormous challenges, not just in the United States, but around the world. And of course, it makes perfect sense that if the legal profession is changing, the question of how to best prepare students for those challenges is a natural one. So that's like six years ago now. So we first met around 2015. So my question to you, and it can be a long answer, don't worry, we got a half hour, <laughs> is <laughs> how well has the profession slash the law schools, particularly in North America, um, met the challenge that the Harvard Law School Center for Professional Legal Education has set forth? Yeah, I mean, I think, as you wisely note, it's a complex question, and it's it's certainly one, the answer to which is nuanced, I think, uh, in, in many respects, including, you know, the population of students with whom uh, various law schools work and, and the different approaches that law schools are taking. And I would be um, remiss, at least, and probably foolhardy at best to try to tackle that issue, broadly speaking. What I can speak about is the programs uh, for which I'm responsible and the way I think in which we're trying to be uh, responsive to the way in which the legal market is changing, the demands that we see uh, among, in my case, different populations in the market for uh, legal education and the way in which our programming is evolving. So you're right. So, we Totally. Oh. So let's jump into that, Emily. I wanted yeah. to mention that because you are responsible for a very unique, if not the most unique program, in my mind, in legal education in kind of any North American law school, um, because it's a graduate level program. So you are responsible for the GPLLM. So tell us what the GPLLM is, for one thing, and, and why it exists. Yeah, so the, the GPLLM is, uh, to spell it out, is Global Professional Master of Laws, and it is an executive, as the name suggests, Master of Laws degree 
that caters to two different audiences. Lawyers, uh, whom are probably about in an average year 50% of our population, and non-lawyers. And that, I think, among other things, is really what in many respects distinguishes the program is in North America, there are kind of increasingly programs that provide non-lawyers with an opportunity to engage in the law. But there are a few of them in Canada. Certainly those that do exist, you know, we are in good company um, and we were not the first to market in offering a law degree for non-lawyers. But there are about three of us uh, operating in this space. Um, program RGPLM has been around since 2011. It started small with one concentration at the time in business law. Um, I think when we started, we anticipated probably because that is, you know, the audience with whom we work in large part and certainly at the time worked almost exclusively. We thought it would cater to lawyers, people who sure. like many of us uh, you know, went to law school, took a mix of courses, both those that we anticipated we would need in order to negotiate the bar and articles, those of interest, and then find our way into practice doing, in some cases, you know, what one intentionally seeks out to do, but in many cases, ending up doing work that was either available at the firm with which one works or um, given to you by the partners with whom you were working most closely. And I think our thought was, well, maybe a few years out, you know, the, the world is changing, it's becoming more global, the practice of law, you know, has always, I think, uh, been evolving and was certainly evolving quite significantly in the early 2010. And so maybe lawyers will want to come back and, you know, really drill down on areas of law that perhaps they didn't have an interest in or an opportunity to explore as law students and might now be encountering in different ways in practice. And that was certainly true. Uh, for the first few years. But what I think became increasingly apparent, uh, and, and I wasn't actually responsible for the program at the time, so some of this is, um, you know, my observations in hindsight, is that the majority of students who were interested in the program were non-lawyers. Uh, and at the time, again, there was another program delivering uh, legal education to non-lawyers in Canada, but it wasn't an audience um, that I think was kind of commonly seeking out uh, legal education at the time and certainly wasn't one I think that was on the radar of most law schools. Uh, so we ran a business law concentration for about four years, had on average, you know, 45 to 50 students, mostly people working, you know, quote unquote, in business, in banks, in uh, complex organizations. Um, but over time, we started to see doctors and nurses and people for whom a business law curriculum, as you might expect, didn't make a lot of sense. You know, it's sure. intuitive that an ER doctor has any particular interest, certainly not professionally, in mergers and acquisitions or securities regulation. And so it started to kind of occur to us that perhaps, you know, we were, we were fighting for the wrong audience, or at least in part striving to attract the wrong audience. Uh, and so in, I think about 2016, we expanded the GPLLM and added three concentrations. And those are the same four now concentrations that run today. Uh, so we still have our business law concentration. It continues to be um, one of the most popular concentrations. And we added a stream in Canadian law, which I'm, I'm happy to talk about. It is a kind of second large cohort with whom we work. Innovation law and technology, which is, I think, the one you and I have discussed most yes. and, and probably the one that speaks to you the most, and then a concentration called the Law of Leadership. Um, and I will, notwithstanding your invitation to speak too long, I'll stop in a moment just to say that 
those uh, four concentrations now have been running since about 2016. Um, as we anticipated, the uh, breadth and kind of diversity of professionals uh, who the program attracts has grown um, and is, is frankly, in my opinion, I, I suppose somewhat unsurprisingly, quite remarkable. So we continue to attract, um, you know, bankers and business people, but we've had uh, doctors, nurses, uh, entrepreneurs, people at the helm of legal tech companies or companies that are perhaps more traditional in their business offerings, but are really looking to think about how to leverage tech for the benefit of their clients. We've had police officers, we've had executive search people. And so it's this fantastically diverse uh, group of people, all of whom are united in a desire to understand the law and to be conversant in it. And I think that's, you know, as anybody pursuing a full-time graduate degree um, would want, I think that's largely in part uh, professionally driven. But interestingly, what we hear almost every year when we're welcoming, welcoming, pardon me, our incoming cohort is this underlying, you know, kind of childhood-like almost passion for the law, right? I, I thought I would go to law school and I didn't, and now it's too late to go back, but I've always really been interested in the law and I've always had a fascination uh, for the law. And it's that duality and motivation, I think, that brings people to our faculty of law. So you're clearly a great advocate for the program, as well as a great advocate for the law school. And as you're telling your story, what appears to me is that you've done something that is exceptionally difficult to do, that lawyers don't talk about enough, and get no training in how to do. So I hope that they're getting the training in this at the law school. And that is achieving product market fit. So first of all, you know, every lawyer has a product. And ironically, that product is that services that that lawyer offers, whether they're solo, small, medium, big law, it doesn't matter. They are offering a product to either consumers or to businesses. But your program has achieved that product market fit. And you also had kind of one thing you had to overcome with the program, which is, let's just be honest about it, it's really expensive. So you've achieved product market fit as well as doing so where it's not really an experimental product at, you know, somewhere between 40 and $60,000 a year. How'd you do that? Uh, you know, I mean, I think it, it um, I think it's interesting. I think we listened a lot. I think, as I say, uh, we had a small program for the first two or three years, which provided us an opportunity to uh, do a few things, really focus on getting the courses that we were offering at that time right. Um, and, you know, and it goes without saying, obviously, the advantage we have is we've been in the business of delivering legal education, and I um, hope delivering legal education, um, you know, well, as you say, at an elite level. So we had an incredible backbone of faculty and infrastructure and knowledge about um, obviously the law um, and you know course design and curriculum design that I think it positioned us well uh, to start off but it it is a different program and, and I would be a fool to suggest that it isn't to this day and I you know I appreciate you saying that we've managed to um, achieve some kind of product market fit but the challenges we faced, I think, at the beginning of the program are, in some respects, the challenges that we continue to face today, which is that there are very few programs in this space. Uh, I think if, you know, I think two things, everybody kind of takes for granted that an MBA is going to add value to your career uh, in a number of different ways, both substantively and otherwise. Uh, 
It's a big leap, <laughs> but yes, I agree. Yes. <laughs> it's may, that may be less true now, but I think, you know, it, it remains true, certainly to the extent that, you know, one can take for granted that every business school has an MBA. There's real advantage. If, if you can convince people that there is value in a business education, then your job as an institution with an MBA program is to really get them to think about pursuing your MBA program. And we don't have that luxury. We have, uh, we have to do two things. One, tell people that you can actually study the law as a non-lawyer and, of course, as a lawyer. Um, you know, I, I do not, as I say, want to, to glance over the fact that we have just fantastic lawyers who have also identified value in the program. But I think the less obvious uh, audience for us is the non-lawyers. And so step one is you can study law and you don't need to have a law degree and you don't need to pause your career for four years. And then step two is do it with and why should you be thinking about law over the myriad other choices you have? So when we started, we listened a lot. You know, we were competent uh, and comfortable, I think, in, as I say, offering a small, um, well-designed, well-developed, well-thought-out uh, kind of pool of courses. And then we just spent a lot of time talking and listening to our students. And I think that's something that we still really prioritize uh, because obviously, you know, to, less, to rest on one's laurels and think, well, we've done it, we've hit, as you say, uh, product market fit would be foolhardy, um, you know, for a number of reasons. There are, there's just a proliferation of executive education in the market. The um, practice of law is changing. The areas of law in which both lawyers and I think non-lawyers are interested changes constantly. And so I don't want to give you a sense that we're not thinking about it, but I think um, I think that we, we really do try to listen and read and pay attention and engage with not only our community of students, but with the market to think about where there may be gaps that we are uniquely positioned to fill. And I think that's, that is tough to do, right? It's tempting to kind of stray into areas that are perhaps not our strongest suit and reminding us uh, or reminding ourselves that it. It is in the study and you know teaching of law that we um, excel and where we can we believe add value to our students. I'm glad that you brought up the MBA thing because I'll, I think that there's actually an analogy between what you're doing and this social media meme of um, soft pants. And you're probably thinking, how is he going to bring this notion of soft pants into this conversation? So in the so past year, everybody, everybody on social media is talking about how it's difficult to go back to wearing hard pants, quote unquote. Yes. And that and even that includes even jeans because we're, we're all walking around in sweatpants <laughs> and anything else that we have. But yes. soft pants really, if you look at it metaphorically, as opposed to literally soft pants, is something flexible and something that we're more comfortable in. So if people are pursuing an MBA because it's this, you know, gate into something else and programs such as yours have better kind of practical application, then that's a great foundation to build upon. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, listen, I, I look regularly in thinking about uh, how we can do better in our program and how we can uh, ensure that we are, as I say, serving our students in the very best way we are able. I look to programs and obviously some of the best evidence of um, excellence in executive education comes from business schools. So I don't want for a second to be um, seen or kind of perceived as suggesting that there aren't, um, there isn't value in a, an executive business degree at all. Um, I think 
you know, I think it's it's interesting to be able to speak to non-lawyers about the law. Um, and as I say, you know, we have the advantage of people who, are, who have perhaps been interested personally in the study of law, but having the opportunity to convince somebody of the value um, professionally and personally, frankly, in a robust legal education, and, and that is the way in which we describe the program, is that we hope you're going to be able to kind of think like a lawyer, that we will be able to impart legal reasoning and some of the, you know, best of legal education um, and legal training generally, but you're going to walk away with a robust uh, legal education. And it's, it's a fascinating conversation to have because I think, you know, initially there's convincing that has to happen, you know, talking about what it means, what it looks like to study law, why the study of law is perhaps different than other fields. And some students have done that work, obviously, themselves. They've, you know, recognized the skills they already have and are starting to think about the gap um, that they'd like to fill in their education, and some don't. And it quickly becomes something I think that people are really intrigued about. And, you know, I, I hope um, it, it doesn't take a lot for the lawyers who are listening, and, and for you and I certainly, to think about why that's the case, right? It, it, I practiced law for a few years. It didn't work for me um, as a profession, but I've never regretted the study of law, ever. Uh, and I think I've, I heard you to say this in one of your um, most recent episodes is that it would be fantastic if the world essentially could have a legal education. Um, and so that's one of, I think, the real privileges of the job is being able to talk to people about uh, the value of legal education, right? And, and whether those are soft pants or hard pants, I don't know. It varies a little bit, I think, from person to person. Um, but it's, it is an enormously... I think empowering um, field of study for most people, and and really, I think for those of us who work with the program and and support our students, just a fantastic opportunity to be able to spend some time getting them to think about the way in which uh, a legal education and, as I say, the tools that lawyers bring to their work um, might change. You know how they how they approach their own work. Well, that's something I absolutely, absolutely want to talk, want to talk about. about. So if we so think, we about, think things about things like, like as, the, as world the world evolves, evolves legal, legal education, education should evolve. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, the vast I mean, the majority of people would agree with that. With that. But, yes. but the world has changed, changed dramatically, dramatically over the past year. Past year. Yes, it ever. Yes. So, so it's it's not going to change back. I mean, the reality is I'm not saying we're going to be wearing masks forever, even though smart people are going to be wearing masks for a good long time, in my opinion. But I agree. The world has changed. So given the fact, as you've said a couple of times during the podcast, the world has changed. How does legal education? So imagine, so it's great that you're at University of Toronto. And again, for people in the United States or our listeners in Europe or Australia who may not know U of T, I mean, I'm certainly comfortable for saying this. You don't have to say it. It's the Harvard Law School of Canada. Okay. Or, or put in your IV, but it, that's my opinion. Great. So it's a traditional school that's done things also like your program in innovative ways. So Mm -hmm. you're at the forefront of what legal education is, certainly within Canada and universities around the world look to you. If you were to build a new law school today or build an entirely new program within this traditional elite school, what would you focus on that isn't being focused on right now? And that may be in response to what's happened in the past year. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Obviously, uh, this is something I think that everybody who works in education is thinking about a lot. Uh, I say that in my, um, you know, small square at the university. I think that's true, generally speaking, at the law school. And I think it is true, 
probably at every level at the university. And, and I would hazard a guess that these conversations are happening um, at every institution, university, college, high school, uh, around the world. And you know, I don't know the right answer. I, I anticipated that this is obviously where our conversation would go in part, and, and I've been thinking about it. Um, and I think the reason I don't know the answer entirely is that there appears um, at this early stage, at least in the pandemic, to be two kind of competing perspectives. And I, and I would say it is changing, if not by the day, certainly by the week or the month at this point. And those perspectives, in my humble opinion, are the following. I think early in the pandemic, there was this, you know, well, we have to move online, obviously. There was no choice. Education moved online. People weren't, you know, necessarily thrilled with it, but there was simply no utility in resisting that. Sure. Uh, you know, we plotted along that way for a few weeks. I think um, then people started to appreciate the comfort, right? And there was this kind of notion that maybe education should be delivered like Netflix, right? I should be able to choose what I want, when I want, engage with it, you know, when I'm walking the dog or cooking dinner, and still have an opportunity to, um, you know, debate and discuss with my faculty and my colleagues, but there should be a lot more flexibility. And I, I don't think that, that uh, we can dismiss that by any stretch of the imagination. I think anybody who thinks, as you say, that we're going to go back to normal um, at any point in the near future, if ever at all, um, I, you know, is probably leading a much less stress-filled <laughs> life than <laughs> exactly. that isn't the case. Um, but what I'm starting to see now is, is less Netflix talk and more of a yearning for some, at least, of the facets of what we were missing. Um, missing the, you know, in-person, obviously, interaction. Missing dinner with colleagues in the hallway. Missing um, the kind of human touch. And I mean that, you know, both literally and figuratively. It, you know, it goes without saying that an opportunity to speak with your classmates is something that most people are missing um, and are feeling more isolated. But I mean it in every sense of the word, the way in which we form relationships with our students, the way in which we are able to, you know, observe both close up and at a distance what it is that they need. That's a lot harder to do when you're remote. And I think for us, at least, and I would hazard a guess that this is true of most programs, it is that ability to anticipate what our students want and need, small picture and big picture, that allows us to um, you know, develop a program, I think, that is innovative, that's responsive to their needs, but also provide student service that is um, responsive and, I hope, at least, excellent in most cases. So, you know, I think some of it is going to call upon us to think about how we deliver education and what education looks like and to train people perhaps differently, both substantively and from a skill standpoint. But I think increasingly there is going to be this tension between making sure that we aren't just jumping in, you know, with both feet into um, a remote, innovative, kind of Netflix-like delivery model, because I think we will be missing something. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been many, many years since I've been in the practice of law, but um, I imagine, at least in part, that to be true there as well, is there's the knowledge you impart as a lawyer, as a law faculty, as, you know, staff on my team, and then there's the service. And the service piece, I think, is the hardest piece to adapt to, is what does it look like to ensure that relationships are being fostered with faculty, with classmates, with us? Um, how do you know 
what people are thinking and feeling and experiencing and, and, you know, make sure that you're responding to all of those needs and wishes before, in some cases, they know what they are when you can't lay eyes on people um, in the same way. And so I, you know, I, I think we're thinking about that. Obviously, I spent a lot of time thinking about what that balance is going to be. You know, the, un the unfortunate truth is we're going to be um, making these changes as we were last spring without knowing what the fall is going to bring. You know, it's not as though you can kind of press pause, redevelop programs over the course of a year and then, you know, pull back the curtains again. We don't know whether we'll be in person in the fall or not. And yet we are uh, having to make changes and then, you know, engage in any planning that's going to take place, anticipating as we did last spring, probably hybrid, I would say, you know, maybe some in person. And so that makes that challenge um, more difficult. And I think, you know, the last thing I would say is, I don't know that people necessarily know what they're going to need or want when this finally starts, not to end, but even to lift a little bit. And so, you know, from a delivery standpoint, it's hard to give something to somebody that they want when I'm not sure that people know yet what they're going to need when this is all said and done. Well, back to the soft pants example, which we're yeah. going to keep getting back to is what if soft pants wear out 10 times faster? Are people going to want to replace 10 pair of pants? for the cost of one pair of hard pants. And I go back to this as a <laughs> concrete example when it comes to cost, because yes. you very justifiably have brought up Netflix as an example in your last mm -hmm. answer. Now, when I deal with entrepreneurs, and as you know, I'm teaching in the McGill's uh, yeah. School of, uh, of Business, um, yep. that was, done like a professor, you know, in the McGill's School of Business, that actually has a name, <laughs> um, and the students are more eloquent than I am, but we obviously talk about pricing and product market fit. So yes. I tell entrepreneurs all the time when they talk about pricing something, I say, look at Netflix. So I don't know exactly what Netflix is costing us today. Let's say it's around 12 bucks a month. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're doing a service that provides less value to people and you think you're going to get away with charging $50 a month and Netflix is charging 12, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. So I love the idea of us being flexible with the kind of programs we deliver. But I can tell you that, you know, I've been teaching McGill students who are all over the world because very few of them are back in Montreal and they're and paying full tuition. Now, yes. I don't think that me in person is really good enough for people to be paying McGill's full tuition, especially international students. And mm -hmm. I think that even though I try, maybe me online for a few hours a week is even less good. So we've got to always factor in those hard things like costs when it comes to the offerings we're going to be giving students in, you know, fall of 2021 and fall of 2025. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. It, you know, cost is uh, complex, right? I, I think there are, um, and, and happily to some extent or another, this is well outside of my uh, pay band to use a cliche, if ever there was one, y you know, it's, it's not the case, as you know, um, from McGill, it's not the case that we can just, uh, change what it costs to deliver a program. Uh, nope. So if you take for granted that programs are going to cost to some extent or another, you know, give or take two, three, four percent from year to year, they're going to cost what they cost now. Then what we're left with is, as I say, making sure that we're doing the very best we possibly can by our students. 
Um, and again, you know, I, I work with the graduate students and uh, like your students, many of them are around the world. That has been extremely challenging, I think, this year. Others are in Toronto and can almost reach out and touch the law school, but haven't been um, able, you know, to join their colleagues in class. Um, and so I think it behooves all of us and, and I can speak, you know, for the law school, certainly, and for my programs to really be challenging ourselves to do our very best. And, you know, I mean for that not to sound like a cliched answer or to be a shallow response, but I think that means everything. It means what's happening in the classroom. It means ensuring that we have the very best faculty at the front of the room, that we're engaging guest speakers, that we're taking advantage of the opportunity to engage people in the classroom whom we might not otherwise have been able to engage, right? People aren't gonna to fly to Toronto in most cases to give a four hour lecture or to be a guest speaker for an hour. But if you're at home and all you need to do is, you know, click on a link and join a Zoom call, then you can. Um, I think it means thinking about curriculum and how it should change, delivering workshops outside of the classroom. And, you know, I, I would be lying if I said I thought we had nailed that um, entirely. I think given the enormous amounts of change we've faced, we've done a pretty good job. But are we there yet? No. You know, we, we have to, I think, constantly challenge ourselves um, and, and try to do the very best, as I say, that we can on all fronts for our, our students. You know, I, I think obviously cost, like you, I suspect, I don't know what law school cost you. My first year of law school was um, sub $10,000. That, that is a different ballpark. I've got young kids. It's not going to cost them what it cost me to uh, do an undergraduate degree or to go to law school. Um, but I do think without, you know, seeming like somebody who's drinking the Kool-Aid that there is value uh, in our program. And that's not to suggest that I think it's cheap, but I do think um, that there, you know, there, there is value in the program. Um, and that's not, as I say, to, to suggest that we're just like, all right, we're, we're done here. We're just going to keep, put it on autopilot, keep moving forward. Um, but I don't know, you know, I don't know that, uh, there's much that we can do really in the short term other than, as I say, you know, trying to constantly drive ahead for more and to be innovative and to be responsive to what our students need and to recognize particularly now that what our students need next year is probably not going to be what they have need in the, needed, pardon me, in the preceding seven years. Exactly. And, you know, as you move forward and really hone that value proposition, because you've mentioned value, which is which is critically it. I mean, you know, cost is easy, as I've done during this episode to say something is expensive or something like Netflix is inexpensive. Yes. But that doesn't mean anything because, you know, and I know that if Netflix quadrupled their cost, most people wouldn't bat an eye because, right. you know, we'd figure out something else to cut because we want to watch you know, uh, the, the the newest French or Scandinavian miniseries that comes right. through. So we don't like jump out the window. We exactly. get it. Um, so value is really critically important in all of this. In my opinion, what we're going to see in the next couple of years is people going back to the teachings of folks like Chris Anderson and mm -hmm. trying finally to say, is there a way that we can do legal education on a grand scale 
for like free or close to free. And it brings value. It has meaning. It has relevance. And people are going to accept it as something more than like, you know, an edX or mm -hmm. a Udemy credit, which of course, all of these pieces, none of them have worked so far. I'm not saying that they have, and I'm not saying they're going to work in a year or two years, but it seems to me that if I wanted to put some money behind something, or I wanted to convince a really innovative institution to try something different that could be truly, sorry to use the word, disruptive, mm -hmm. that may be the way to go. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I heard you say this uh, in one of your other episodes, and I'm curious, you know, as I say, I, I do think there's enormous value in a legal education, obviously, uh, to have gone through three, three years of law school and many other years in the practice of law and not have uh, derived value would be, um, would reflect certainly very poorly on me. I'm curious, um, and this didn't come up in, in your last conversation, I'm curious whether when you say that you mean just to to proliferate legal education generally, or whether you imagine or hope for disruption in the delivery of legal education that will allow people to become licensed? Because I think those are obviously two very different things. A law school that does it for free or near to free is a very different thing than as you say, here is a law school-like experience that just gets legal knowledge out there with it in mind, you know, to empower people, to allow them, you know, obviously the benefit of the knowledge, um, hopefully to eliminate. I'm really glad you've, I'm glad you've turned the table on the interviewer. It's a wonderful <laughs> question. So the first piece is easy. I mean, to give legal education to people for free or to give education about legal things, well, that, that's easy. I mean, we have the methods of delivery, you know, yeah. universities have them, they exist, oh, that's fine. I'd like to see more of a return to the 60s and 70s where mm -hmm. like, you know, people in Berkeley and San Francisco can get a legal education and find ways, even in just their jurisdiction, to practice and do mm -hmm. so like, you know, at the old YMCA night law schools or the People's right. College of Law, because I think that would bring so many more people into the practice of law actually helping so many people who need help, who can't mm -hmm. go to big law firms on Wall Street or Bay Street and can't go to folks who are charging, you know, $600 an hour or have eschewed the billable hour in exchange for something that's still expensive anyway. That's mm -hmm. what I'd like to see. I don't think that we're going to get there in 2021 or necessarily in 2031, but I'd like to see people try. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that's not a, a problem for 2021 in all likelihood. And I, I don't know, uh, you know, I, I'm, I think more of an optimist than I am a pessimist, generally speaking in life. But I don't know. I don't know. Um, if you said to me right now, Emily, bet the house on uh, 2031, I don't know that I would do it. And I think for a whole host of reasons, right? If you use uh, the MBA example, there are an increasing number of, as you say, free or essentially free MBAs that one can do online. I suspect, you know, I don't know enough about them to know what their enrollment numbers are, but I suspect that they're doing fairly well. Sure. I don't know that you'd see somebody who's wrestling between Wharton, for example, and a free or near free online MBA. Right. Doing the latter. And I think that's going to be, you know, that that is the issue, right? As we... Um, names matter, um, experience matters. And that's not to suggest that you couldn't put together, you know, a good program. I just think there are so many complexities in that problem that 
I don't know, 10 years feels short to me. I think you've brought us to a great place at the end of this podcast, which is you've talked so many times about kind of like the lawyer's mind, the lawyer's mentality, think like a lawyer. I don't know is a perfect way to end a conversation about the law because good lawyers should be saying a lot to clients and potential clients. You know what? I just don't know at the moment. Emily Orchard, thanks very much for ending our first season of the nextlevel.com legal podcast. We hope to talk to you again in the future. Thanks for having me, Aaron. It was really lovely. Great. Bye. Thanks. Bye.